This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180TAC. Get out there and have some fun. Episode 170, Luke Tiberski, living life to the fullest as an endurance adventurer. Hello and welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. This is your host, Kurt Linville. Today, I have Luke Tiberski with us, and Luke is an amazing man with an amazing story. This is going to be a very inspirational and fun podcast. Luke does endurance adventures, and he identifies himself primarily with that as an endurance adventurer who loves living life, tries to be the best person he can be every single day, and Luke has done some incredible feats all over the planet, which we're going to dive into. Luke, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on, Kat. You bet it's our pleasure. So, Luke, you told me just before we started recording here that you're Australian, you were there for 21 years, and then you lived in the U.S., and then the last eight years have been in Europe. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, I'm an Aussie through and through, really, Um, but I grew up playing soccer, and uh, I um, lived in Sydney for a few years, but I grew up actually in in the country, in the outback. And then at the age of 21, I went over to the US and to play some college uh, soccer over there in numerous places. I played in Oklahoma and Kentucky, and then I played in some lower leagues in San Francisco, New Orleans, and Orlando. So I bounced around a fair bit in my four years there. And then I tried to continue my my dream of being a professional soccer player and headed over to Europe, spent a little bit of time in England before I went over to uh, Belgium and played over in Belgium and then I went back to England and unfortunately I suffered a few injuries over about a three-year period and I wasn't really playing a whole lot and I ended up retiring from soccer and I signed up to a crazy big race through the desert and I said I'm going to be an adventurer and four and a half years later here we are speaking. <laughs> That's fun. So where in Oklahoma did you play soccer? I played at a NAIA school called Southern Nazarene University in Bethany on the outskirts of Oklahoma City. Oh, that's great. So I am originally from Oklahoma, so we have that in common. Oh, there you go. Yeah, yeah. lovely people out there. Fantastic. You started doing mega adventures after you retired from your soccer career. Um, what got you started with that? You mentioned a, a race through the desert. Yeah, basically, I needed a, a sidestep from real life. So I was 28 years of age, just finally retired from soccer, hanging up the boots, needed a new career change, didn't really know what I was going to do, and I basically just went, you know what, I don't want to grow up yet. So while I was icing my calf that I'd just torn uh, in a training session I was doing myself, I found this race online uh, on Dr. Google, and I, without thinking about it, I signed up to it, and it was a 155-mile race in seven days through the Sahara Desert, carrying everything you need on your back. And it was in six months' time. And I hadn't even ever ran more than six miles in one go. So I basically went straight to the top. So is that the Marathon de Sobs? It certainly was. <laughs> wow. The Marathon de Sobs is quite a race. Some people say the toughest foot race in the world. Well, it's definitely tough, and it was my first foot race I'd ever done. Wow. So with that short period of time to train, what was it like when you got to the race and actually attempted it? It was an amazing experience. The Sahara Desert is beautiful. 
it's literally like you're on another planet. Um, it really is. And the, oh, the, the atmosphere of the race is, is amazing because when I did it four years ago, there was 850 people and everyone's there just, you know, wants to put one foot in front of the other and get to the finishing line. There's a lot of camaraderie. But I also got injured um, just before I went out. I, I hurt my knee, but I still was going to go out there and did it. But after about uh, 12 miles into the first day, my I could feel my knee was not going to hold up. But I, I struggled through uh, the, the seven days, and I had a really great experience because I got uh, a stomach virus, so I had diarrhea oh, and vomiting no. up all on day three. And then my toes were really badly blistered and I degloved my little toes. So basically the whole skin just down to the flesh popped off. Oh. And then on day four, which is a double, which is a double, um, marathon day, after about 12, 13 miles, I was severely dehydrated because I was, uh, had a stomach virus the day before that basically I got to this checkpoint and the doctors there said, we either give you an intravenous drip because you're severely dehydrated and delusional or we pull you out of the race. So I had intravenous drip in the middle of the Sahara Desert. Makes me laugh every time I say that. <laughs> um, but I finished the race and it was an experience, as you can see. Um, and there's also actually a, a video on my on my website um, about my experience training for it and then doing it as well. But I, I must admit, don't eat while you watch it because there's a few gory bits in it as well. <laughs> so your website, just so the listeners know, if they want to look at some of the pictures while they're listening, it's not if you're driving, right? But if you're yep. listening at home, it's uh, LukeTiberski.com. So that's Luke, T-Y-B-U-R-S-K-I.com. And he has... Uh, done a good job of, of showing his adventures there. Speaking of, I'm going to go down the list, Luke, because I want people to know some of the things that you've done. Climbing volcanoes in Guatemala, the Marathon de Sobs, which we just talked about, um, surfing, and yeah. we need to dive into that one a little bit, the Mount Everest Ultra Marathon, the Lucathon, sounds like something <laughs> that you put together yourself there. Yep. <laughs> the Hainan Running for Survival Adventure, Mount Aspiring, the Double Brutal Extreme Triathlon, and the Ultimate Triathlon. And uh, just so people know kind of what we're talking about, we're talking about distances here, thousands of kilometers or miles instead of, you know, just uh, dozens, as a lot of people might think. And so I'm really interested in hearing how your uh, your ultra-athletic abilities developed. I mean, if you started out as a soccer player, I mean, soccer players are obviously some of the, the most fit people on the planet. But that's largely a sprint game. Now you're talking about a distance game. So things had to change for you. Yeah, no, very much so. People say, oh, well, you're an athlete your entire life. Yes, but it's very, very different. I might have had a leg up because I was disciplined and I was used to putting myself through through pain, but it was a different type of pain. But training for uh, ultra-endurance things is very, is very, very different. I thought a long training session was two hours back when I was a soccer player, but these days, two hours is a bit like, oh, it's pointless, why do I do it at all? Um, so, yeah, I really, with the Marathon de Saabs, I was running between uh, 50 miles a week, I got up to 100 miles a week one time, and after that, I really, and dur during that experience, I really fell in love with, with going ultra long and, you know, going out for three, four, five hour runs, getting lost in my, in my own mind and in the surroundings and really sort of, uh, 
fell in love with with sport and exercise again, which I'd sort of finished my football career and had a little bit of a bad taste in my mouth from you know basically having to retire from injuries. Mm. Well, you certainly overcame a lot of inter- injuries to do what you're doing here. Um, I want to go into more of the details about what each of these adventures are, but before we do, why do you do it, Luke? Well, four and a half years ago when I retired from football, the way I like to sort of introduce myself is that I was a broken down, injured soccer player who was suffering from depression quite badly, and I was in a pretty dark place in my life. I'm quite open about my uh, my battle with my ongoing battle with depression these days, but it, life sucked. I wasn't living it. I was 28. I had the whole world in front of me. I was living in London in a great part, um, you know, of, of Europe and the world. And and I, I, as I said, I needed an escape from life. That's why I signed up to the Marathon de Sams. But I, I got this this passion for for just living life. What I was out in the desert. And I knew what not living life was, um, you know, when I was having a battle with, with depression in my dark days that sometimes I couldn't even leave the house, I couldn't even get out of bed. And that's not like me and it's not like my personality, but this is something I was suffering in silence with. And I just thought with this newfound passion for endurance sports and running and doing all these crazy big things, and I and I realized I got, I got a bit of a following, and people loved what I was doing, and hearing the story of the desert coming from this broken down, injured soccer player. So I thought, wow, this is a way that I can inspire people to live their lives every single day, and I'm going to try and be the best version of myself every single day. Because back when I was uh, having some dark days, when I was an injured soccer player, I wasn't living so. I want to live my life every single day and inspire others to do the same, and that's really why uh, why I do it all. And I, and I think a lot of it's fun too, to be honest. Oh yeah, no doubt. So, did you find that these mega adventures really help the depression? During yes, after no. Everyone has a come down after a match or a race or a big adventure. So um, the first couple, it was it was amazing. I was up and I was feeling like literally on top of the world and then after it finished there was a you know some pretty dark times but I've you know I've been working a lot uh, on my self-development and also using these adventures to help with my mindfulness training so I go out on these really long runs or these long cycles or swims or treks and just try and connect with nature and connect with the surroundings I'm in and, and be really present and that helps me to um, when I when I have a, a dark day or when I'm having a tough time, to be present and to acknowledge that and sort of say, hi, yeah, you're here, but I'm not going to let you get over the top of me. I'm not letting anything else distract me from giving this acknowledgement and then I can move on. And, and yeah, so they definitely help to, to create a bit more of a mindfulness in, in my daily life. Mm. I want to highlight a couple of things you just said. I want to make sure that people heard this. Connecting with nature and being present and being mindful. And yeah. that triad right there, it it fixes so many things. Such an encouragement in life if you can connect with nature, if you can be present, right? It's it's uh, it's amazing. So what good words you gave there. That's awesome. Yeah, no, it, it, it truly is. And it can be, it doesn't have to be going running through the Sahara Desert or anything like that. It can quite literally be walking through an inner city park and stopping at this time of year and smelling the flowers or you know watching the birds come in or something like this and 
that's just as amazing for me as it has been with some of the crazy challenges I've done throughout the entire world. Um, but as you said, it's about being present and, and connecting with that nature and it goes a long way to help you with just things in normal life. I want to kind of unwrap that just a little so people get what we're talking about. When we say being present, you know, it's it's very common for people to feel overwhelmed with the pressures that they have you know, in life, overwhelmed with the past that is haunting them, or even overwhelmed with a future that's very uncertain. But, you know, the past is just a memory. The future Mm -hmm. is just a dream. The present is the only reality that exists. And if you can remove yourself from worrying about an unknown future, and if you can remove yourself from thinking about a troubling past, and you can look at where you are right now at this moment, almost always you can say, I'm okay. Everything right now is just fine. Yeah, exactly. And it's taking that mindset into the next thought and the next action and continuing that throughout each day. And it's very difficult to do. Don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm very bad at it, but I try every day. And I think that's the first, first step. If you can try to be as present as much as you can throughout the day and, um, then you're on the right track in, in my opinion. Well, one more question for you then. If someone finds themselves in that dark place, how do they get up off the couch? How do they get out of the bed? How do they get out the door to the park to be present with nature? Yeah, that's that's the million dollar question, isn't it? <laughs> I've I've found that, um, as I said, acknowledging that I'm in that dark place or I'm having that dark time, um, and saying, okay, it's here. Instead of trying fighting it, walk alongside of it and say, okay, I'll let you be here today. Or I'll let you be here this morning, but okay, I'm going to give you your time and space now, but I'm going to try and move forward. And that's one side of things. And the other side of things is is knowing and having clarity in what you want in life and what you're trying to achieve. So for me these days, uh, it's you know, to inspire others to live their lives. And when I'm having a dark time, I'm, I'm like, well, okay, I acknowledge this and I'll give it its time of day, whether it's a half a day or a full day or a couple of hours. And go, but right after I do this, I want to do something that's not only going to make me feel good, but it's going to help someone else who may be struggling in in that time uh, of of day as well. But also to just try and um, yeah, be present and not try and beat yourself up about it, and just try and stay right where you are and don't think about the past or don't think about the future, but just be that that your present self. And I found that. At times, that can help, but it's a very, very, very tough situation to come Luke, in and out of. Luke, thank you for being real with us and sharing that because I know that there are millions of people around the planet who are dealing with something like that, and I think everybody does from time to time. So your words will connect and your words will inspire. So thank you for sharing that. No problem. Let's dive into your adventures. Sweet. You have so many here. We should probably pick your favorite one for the deep stories, but let's just hear a highlight of each one for starters. Guatemala climbing volcanoes. All right, Guatemala. Yep, it's really the first proper big adventure that I ever did. I was still a footballer. I was an injured footballer. I was about to have surgery on my Achilles. And basically, I was seeing a top physician, and he had a few weeks waiting list. So I had a friend uh, who I played soccer with in Oklahoma, actually. He was out in Kitzel-Tenango in the middle of uh Guatemala and he said come out and see me so I went out there for about eight days and he there was volcanoes all around the city where he was was at and basically we just went and trekked up them and a couple were active and actually one of them uh, erupted a week after I was there so that was pretty crazy but just seeing these 
massive um, mountains that were alive with with you know smoke coming out of the tops. It really, I didn't know it at the time, but it ignited the adventure bug inside of me, and and it's always stayed with me that I just remember being on top of these volcanoes and looking out with the smoke just bellowing out, uh, and I thought, wow, this is a this is what real adventure is all about. And, and I actually remember being on top of volcanoes whenever I do my big challenges these days as well. Mm. You know, I, I had the opportunity to hike down into a, a little caldera, actually a large caldera in Kenya, where the volcano was only geothermically active, but it got hot enough that it was catching the grasses on fire that were down mm. in the caldera. And it was an amazing experience. Um, I, I doubt that it paralleled what you're talking about here, but... I, I get it, man. When you stand next to that much power, it, uh, it kind of brings perspective, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. You know you're not in control uh, <laughs> whatsoever. <laughs> so we already mentioned the Marathon de Saabs. Um, what an amazing race that is. And for people who don't really know about it, it's uh, essentially a marathon every day with one day being a double marathon through the Sahara Desert. You're running on shifting sands and incredible heat. Um, just crazy. Did you... Uh, Come away from the marathon to sobs with a life lesson you'd like to share. With a life lesson, don't never give up. Mm. Never give up. And if you want to, if you want to achieve in life and you want to get something out of life, all you have to do is concentrate on taking one step at a time, and you will eventually get there. Yeah, you know, I have never done anything even close to the the magnitude of the marathon to sobs, but I have been in situations where. You know, I'm I'm on hour 12 of a long backpacking trip or bike ride, and uh, you can't stop. You just have to keep going. And what I found is interesting about it, and you can probably attest to this far better than I could, but you get to a point of exhaustion, but then you don't get more tired than that. It's like, oh, I could keep going like this for a long time. Not that it's easy, but just like you said, you just keep putting one foot in front of the other, and it happens. Yeah, I, I like to put it as being comfortable with being uncomfortable. And that uncomfortable doesn't get any worse. It's just you become comfortable feeling like that. And if you stop, you're not moving forward. But if you take that one little step and one little step, all of a sudden you've taken a lot of steps to where you want to go. And you can take that in life. You can take that in business. You can take that in relationships. You can take that in your mindfulness training uh, you know. And that's one thing that I really came out of the Marathon de Sables where there was times where I had blisters in my toes and my knee was on fire and it was, you know, like 125 degrees and I was just like, this sucks, but I've still got 15 miles to go. So I'm just going to keep putting one foot in front of the other and eventually I got to the finish line. Mm, that's fantastic. You know, often adventure sports take us to that point, maybe not to the degree that the Marathon de Sobs would, but it takes us to the point of, like you said, being comfortable, being uncomfortable. And when people latch onto that, um, it opens up a whole world of adventures that they can do when they realize, wow, I can do this. I just have to keep going. Action cameras evolved quickly and are no longer just for recording your adventures. The new SIOI Iris 4G shares experiences as they happen. The connected camera is built specifically for action sports. It's rugged, wearable, and goes places you won't take your smartphone. The best part? Broadcast from the great outdoors with a simple touch. Your friends can watch live or come back for an instant replay. No downloads, no editing, now that's progress. 
Visit SIOEYE.com and share your next adventure live. Bentgate Mountaineering, located in Golden, Colorado, has been outfitting backcountry travelers for the last 20 years. Spring has sprung, but there's still a lot of great skiing in the backcountry, and it's prime time to check out the latest in alpine touring, telemark, NTN, and split boarding gear. Bentgate carries the premier brands, including Black Crows, DPS, Dinafit, G3, Icelandic, K2, Rocky Mountain Underground, Rosignol, Solomon, Voli, Never Summer, and Jones. With more people in the backcountry than ever, it's crucial to be prepared. Bentgate has the latest in avalanche safety gear from beacons to airbags. Come in and they will set you up with the proper gear and point you in the right direction to educate yourself on snow safety. If you don't own the gear, Bentgate offers a full range of rental and demo equipment, including the latest skis, boots, split boards, beacons, shovels, and probes. Bentgate also hosts free demo ski days at local resorts to give you a hands-on opportunity to ride the latest gear. Be sure to check bentgate.com for their full product selection as well as updates on all of their events. Exactly, and it's dreaming big. There's nothing wrong with dreaming big, and there only needs to be one person that truly believes that you can do whatever goal it is, and that's you. It doesn't matter if everyone else in the world says, no, I don't think you can do it, or no, you can't do it, or no, it's never been done. That's irrelevant. If you believe you can do it, and then going back to what I learned from Marathon de Sabs, you just keep taking one step at a time to get to that goal, or be able to... Uh, make that dream a reality. And if you've got that belief in yourself, that's all you need. Mm, I love it. Very cool. So the next thing on your website here is learning to surf. Yeah. So I live in London. I'm an Australian living in London, and I didn't know how to surf. So when I was coming back from the Marathon de Saab, and I think I'm going to do all these big adventures, I'm going to be an adventurer, that was my big goal. And I used to tell people, I'm an adventurer now. And they would laugh at me and go, yeah, what are you going to do when you grow up? And I said, no, I'm going to be an adventurer. And I hope your listeners can sort of come along the journey of me and see where my big goal became or is becoming a reality where it's not now that I introduce myself as an endurance adventurer and people go, wow, what's that? What do you do? And I tell them and they go, wow, that's amazing. But back now where we're talking about Luke Learns to Surf, to about three years ago, I told people this and they would laugh at me. So I was about creating content for for my dream, my brand, and being an adventurer. And I just thought, I want to learn to surf. So there's sort of a famous area to surf in the southwest coast of, of England down called Newquay. And I caught up a surf school there. And I said, I'm going to come down, learn to surf on a Sunday, but I'm going to cycle down on Saturday. And they went, oh, yeah, where, where from? I said, London. And they went, no, you can't do that. It's it's quite far. And I thought, no, no, it's fine. It's coming. I'm coming down. It's all good. It's all good. It's fine. And they went, yeah, well, okay, um, sure. So I cycled uh, basically 255 miles on a Saturday. 
got up the next day and learned to surf. That was it. <laughs> 255 miles on a Saturday. I love it. <laughs> That's great. So was it hard to surf the next day because of the, the exertion the day before, or was it okay? I had very little sleep on the on the Saturday night just because I, I've been going for 18 hours and we come in and my body was still was still going and I had very little sleep. So I got up basically just as the sun came out, had some food and then when I had breakfast with the rest of I had like a three mates who followed me down in a car and I had a window of about 30 minutes where I had energy when I was in the water and the water was was a bit fresh a bit cold so for about 30 minutes I actually got up on a few waves and this or that then after about 30 minutes my energy just plummeted <laughs> and I was struggling and um, yeah, everyone stayed in the water for another half an hour and I was like, guys, I'm, I'm done. Um, <laughs> and on my website, there's actually a short little video about Luke Learns to Surf as well. So people can check that out and see what it was all about. Oh, that's fun. Uh, Mount Everest Ultra Marathon. So now we're in Nepal. Tell us about that one. Yeah. So this was, um, one of the biggest adventures I've been on and one of the most, uh, rewarding as well. So, I wanted to do a big challenge, a big race, something like this. So I, I looked at the world's longest, hottest, coldest, driest, wettest, highest marathons, ultramarathons, and found the Mount Everest Ultramarathon, which is the highest ultramarathon in the world. It's 42 miles, and it starts at Gorakshep, which is the last stop before Everest Base Camp. And it's about... Uh, it's 5,200 meters, so in feet, that's about 17,000 feet, I think. Um, yeah. So, yeah, so I, I thought, wow, that's going to be great. It's going to be an amazing experience. But I thought, hang on, if I'm going to go all the way to Nepal, why don't I try and see if I can't get in touch with some ultramarathon runners in Nepal and go and spend some time with them and, and their families? So through numerous phone calls and emails to random people over there, I got in touch with the race director and he put, when I came over to Nepal, I organized to come over about four weeks before and I went and stayed with some of the country's elite ultramarathon runners in their family homes high up in the mountains of rural Nepal where no Westerners had ever been. Now, perched up on these hills in sort of like the the plateaued out uh, paddies where they, where they grow some potatoes and things like this for their farms, sort of like on the tiered levels up there, are these mud huts with thatched roofs, buffaloes, goats, chickens roaming around. And uh, I stayed there for like four weeks. No electricity, no running water, no nothing. It was it was amazing. I have found that when I'm in a place like that, it, it's a bit of an adjustment to get used to it, but there's something wonderful about it. But coming back to a place where there is the hot running water and the electricity, sometimes that's even harder. <laughs> Yeah, so I spent that month in the mountains and that was phenomenal. The most happiest people I've ever met in my life. Um, the families I, I stayed with and, and shared some meals, meals with in the different villages. But every day they lived just for survival. They would get up, they would start a fire in the house, in a little hole in the ground and cook some food, clean up, do some chores, prepare for lunch, cook lunch, clean up, do some other chores, take some food to the market, barter, you know, they, they need some some other food and they've, and they've got some different food. They would swap things um, and that was their life. And then I went to basically to Kathmandu for a day and then went over to – flew to Lukla and that's where you trek up to base camp. 
so I had basically, you know, this whole six week block where I didn't really have the normal, um, hot water, normal life. And then coming back to Kathmandu for two nights before I flew back to London, yeah, it was horrible. Even though it was Kathmandu and it was still quite edgy, it was still quite adventurous, but we had electricity, even though the generators would conk out sometimes and be blackouts, but hot um, showers and this and that. And I really missed the simplicity of the mountain life and it made me realize that we don't need anywhere near as much as we think we do and the happiest people in the world have nothing, in my opinion. You know, I don't want to belittle how difficult it would be to live in, in those, you know, subsistence farming type communities, but I think that they kind of live in that present world that we were talking about before. Maybe that's part of the reason that you saw so much happiness there. No, I, I totally agree because every day is just about survival, as I, as I said, and yeah, it's ta- it's being present every time they do something, whether it's cooking the meal, whether it's cleaning the pots, whether it's cleaning the house, milking the buffalo, going to the market to get the best price for their milk or anything like this. They've, they do one thing at a time and they do that one thing the best that they can do it and it makes them smile. I'm sure it's difficult. Um, it's a difficult life to be but you know, as I said, they're truly some of the happiest people and they have basically next to no material things whatsoever. Mm. I read a quote and I, I apologize, I don't remember who originally said it, but I love it so much and that was that to be satisfied with little is very difficult, but to be satisfied with much is impossible. I, I would have to agree with that. And it, it, it's so backwards to the Western mindset because we've been programmed by advertising and what have you that it's what we can acquire that will bring us satisfaction. But I'm not yeah. sure that that's really true. No, no, mm. not at all. Not at all. Wow. Well, good for you for getting out and experiencing all these things and then for sharing with others. I, it's it's really inspirational to me. So the Lucathon is next on your list. What was that? Well, I'd, I'd signed up to do my first ever triathlon, but it got cancelled a couple of weeks beforehand and I had no triathlon experience and I just thought, well, I'm, I'm going to create my own little sort of three-quarter Ironman distance triathlon. So I went to my local swimming pool on a Saturday. I went to a local swimming pool and did like a mile and a half in the pool and then ran back to my house and did about uh, 75 miles on the bike. Um, and then I come home and then I did 15 miles running. And, uh, yeah, it was a nice little seven-hour Saturday. It was fantastic. And that was my first ever swim, cycle, and run, but my first uh, unofficial triathlon. Just a bit <laughs> of fun, really. Well, what I like about that is that the the event was canceled, and you said, well, I'll just do something then. Well, one, I'd done all this training. I was like, well, I'm not just going to go not do anything. So I thought I'd put it all together. <laughs> That's great. I had a friend years ago that used to come over to my house, and he would walk in and say, well, let's go then. And I'd be like, well, what do you mean? Let's go then. You know, what's the plan? He goes, I don't know. Let's, let's go then. <laughs> let's, do, let's do it. Let's go. Let's do it. And so we would always go do something and, and had wonderful adventures just by getting out the front door. Isn't that the key? Oh, that first step, getting through the front door, and then you just got to take the next one and keep going. Absolutely. Okay. The Hainan Running for Survival. This one really caught my eye. I wanted to know the details about this. Well, this was today. The most real adventure I've ever been on. Um, and I still shake my head at what I went through. So I had some, the 
elite Nepalese ultra runners that I stayed with, they were doing a teams race in Hong Kong. And I thought, wow, I've never been to Hong Kong. They said, would you like to come out and help crew for us and help pace us for this 100-kilometer race? I was like, oh, okay, I'll I'll try and try and see if I can get a ticket over there. And so I thought, well, I should go over there and do my own adventure because you know I'm an adventurer these days, and that's what I do. So I found this little island off the south off the south coast of uh, Hong Kong in the South China Sea called Hainan, and it had a few small mountains in the middle of the country. It's it's not a very big island. Uh, it's probably about a, I know a hundred and twenty miles. Um, 130 miles sort of both ways going up um, north to south, east to west. And uh, I thought I'm going to go on up into the mountains and spend two, three or four days running through through the mountains, just sleeping in a hammock between some trees in the forest and you know, take a backpack full of food. I might find some, some native fruit or some little villages and things like this. You know, very, very adventurous and to be honest, not really – <clears throat> excuse me, thought out all that well. But when I got to Hong Kong, the day before I was going over to Hainan, the island, the typhoon that ripped through the Philippines uh, two and a half years ago came up through Hainan and basically took that island out as well the following day. So I was delayed a day and a half or two days in Hong Kong until I eventually flew flew out there. Now, I flew out to this island that had just been hit by this typhoon and there was rubble and there was trees falling down everywhere. It was a bit of a war zone. But being the ignorant, stupid Westerner as I as I was, I guess, I convinced one of the cab drivers with basically all the cash that I had to take me to the middle of the island where this city was um, that I was going to start my adventure. So I did that. He left. He got paid. We had to move a few trees as we went through this one road that went through the middle of the island. And then basically I was left with two and a half days to, to run through the mountains. And I thought, that's still fun. That's going to be good. And I thought, oh, it was starting to get dark by the time this was, uh, this was happening. So I thought, I'll get a quick hotel room um, and then go out the next morning. And uh, my credit card didn't work. I told my bank I was leaving. I had no cash. I had no water. I had no money. I I had no food, I had nothing. I hadn't ate since that morning in, in Hong Kong. And I thought, what am I going to do? And then it started a, a sort of a chain reaction of events where the human spirit really came to the fore because a woman in the hotel that I was trying to get a room at that could see I, I had no money took me to a bank to try and get money out. That didn't work. And then she paid for a cheap hotel room across the street and just left, just paid for it, just left. It was phenomenal because she saw I was in a bit of a bind. Mm. So that day, that night, I boiled as much water as I could. I snacked on any sort of free little biscuits and stuff they had there, which was not much. And I set off the following day having basically two days to cover the uh, about 60 miles, 65 miles back to the airport. So I made it into running for survival because I literally – had only the water that I could carry with me and no food, no nothing for these two days. So I set it off in probably 100-degree heat with 100-degree humidity through this tropical island and people saw me with their little roadside stores of oranges and coconuts and they would give them to me and I would try and signal to them I had no money but they would they would give it to me and it's fine. And so I'd take a photo with them and, 
and trundle along and then I was getting really dehydrated and throwing up towards the end of the day and I saw these coconuts on the side of the road that sort of the young ones with the water in them and the chops had topped off, been chopped off and I called them roadkill coconuts because I knew there'd still be a little bit of flesh. So I cracked them open and scraped out some of the flesh and that kept me going for a while and I got to the end of the first day and I thought, oh, I've got about uh, probably 20 miles to go maybe and I thought this will be it. I'll I'll pitch my hammock and I hang my hammock and I'll start a fire and I'll boil some more water. I'll find some water somewhere and that'll be it. But because of the typhoon went through only a few days earlier, I couldn't get the fire hot enough or long enough to boil any water. So I still wasn't drinking any more water that day. And the worst thing that could have happened that night was it started to rain. So I got soaked sleeping in a hammock and I got a chill and I was freezing and I even got video footage of me telling my mum I loved her on camera, so that was always interesting. <laughs> um, and then I got up the next day pretty sore, pretty rough after running 40-odd miles and not really eating anything and, and drinking very little. And I set off for about the first 10 miles or so, and I just really don't remember much because I was suffering from severe dehydration. I kept collapsing. I kept vomiting. And then I came to the main road, which is about six or seven miles from the uh, the city I was aiming for. And so I started to like, try and hitchhike because there was cars coming in there. And a black, brand new black SUV pulled over. I thought it was a dream. And he opened the door and came in, spoke no English. And he basically took me to a youth hostel in the middle of, of the city and gave me some bottles of water and things to drink and dropped me off there where they spoke a little bit of English and and then the people at the youth hostel gave me enough money for a bus fare to the bank and then and then I could get money out from the bank and then go to the airport and I eventually got to the airport and I survived and uh, that was my Hainan adventure running for survival. Wow. You know, the unexpected sure got you that time. Oh, yeah, definitely. And I wrote about it in a, a short story that's actually on my website. If you sign up to my uh, newsletter on the right-hand side of my page, which I actually have never sent anyone a newsletter in the four years I've had my website, but you'll actually get a, a free cookbook and also that I wrote and also my total uh, running for survival mini book as well. You know, sometimes it's the unexpected that makes for the best stories, but that one does not sound pleasant. It wasn't pleasant, but it was uh, an emotional roller coaster ride but also phenomenal that the human spirit really came together and and yeah those people on the island kept me alive i i truly believe that mm. 60 miles in two days an incredible heat plus freezing rain and that without food or proper water yikes wow yeah it was real yeah real real <laughs> yeah so there are two more adventures here mount aspiring is the first or no we have more than two what was mount aspiring three Yep. Mount Aspiring was, uh, I also train other athletes um, and other clients. Uh, I've got exercise science background and I had one of my clients who had who has MS, multiple sclerosis, and had done so for half of his life uh, and for his 60th birthday, he wanted to climb a mountain in New Zealand. So we went off to the South Island of New Zealand to climb Mount Aspiring, the second highest mountain um, in New Zealand. And, uh, yeah, we trekked off through a glacier, uh, helicoptered up on the edge of a glacier and, and trekked through that. And, unfortunately, we got to the, the, the base camp for the final summit push, but because of bad weather, we were holed up in this little wooden cabin on the side of a snowy mountain for about four days. 
and then our time ran out, and unfortunately. But instead of just walking back across the glacier and getting a helicopter back down, we walked all the way out, which took us um, – we did it over two days, but the first day was, I think it was about 12 hours, and then the next day about four hours to get back down to where we needed to be. So um, that was amazing. That was proper Lord of the Rings country. We went from trekking through snow, walking across a glacier, walking down snowy and, and, and rocky uh, cliffs, abseiling down a cliff into uh, sort of grassy, rocky areas and then like with all soft, uh, loose shale and then back into a lush, grassy, uh, green areas where Lord of the Rings was filmed and things like this. And that was a phenomenal trip that really was, even though we didn't quite get to the summit, but we still uh, had a great adventure. Hey folks, be sure to swing by 180tac.com to check out the 180 stove and the 180 flame camp stoves. These lightweight, compact, multi-fuel stoves are made in the USA and are designed to be fail-proof on your adventure. These stoves offer the flexibility to cook your meal using twigs and sticks found around you or various other fuels like gel fuel, alcohol, charcoal, or even use them as a windbreak and stable cooking surface for remote bottle gas stoves. The ingenious locking tab and slot design ensures your stove is very solid and stable without the use of hinges, rivets, or fasteners that can fail you in the field. Visit 180tack.com to find your next camp stove. House of Motorrad is Colorado's original adventure motorcycle rental company. From their top-of-the-line fleet of rental motorcycles by BMW, KTM, Triumph, and Yamaha to their expert service shop, they are your one-stop shop for all of your motorcycle needs. Servicing all makes and models from tire changes to engine rebuilds, House of Motorrad will take care of you and get you on the road. Visit www.houseofmotorrad.com to check out their selection of parts and accessories or call them at 720-466-0047. At House of Motorrad, your adventure awaits you. Then the double brutal extreme triathlon. Now we're getting into some craziness. Yeah. So to tell you why I, I did this, we have to go back to the Marathon de Sables. Uh, being, I told everyone, I'm going to be an adventurer. This is what I'm going to do. And I thought, to be an adventurer, I need to do something really big. I need to do something that puts me on the map. So I stared at a, a world map with one thing on my mind, adventure. And I want to come up with something crazy, something unique. And the Strait of Gibraltar between... Spain and Morocco jumped out at me. And then the southeast coast of Spain just appeared. And I thought, well, maybe I could swim that and I could cycle that. And then what's next? I could do a bit of a triathlon. And I saw Monaco a little bit further on the coast and they sort of looked like a, you know, similar to a triathlon, a short swim, long bike and a little bit shorter bike, uh, run. And I thought, I want to do that. So I did some research and realized it was well, I say 2,000 kilometers in 12 days, but basically it was 1,350 miles in 12 days of swimming, cycling, and running. And I said, I'm going to do this in four years. So that was back when I did the MDS. This was my big thing. And all of these adventures were sort of giving me experience, training me up to do the ultimate triathlon. So to the Double Brutal Extreme Triathlon, which was in September 2014, I thought, 
Well, I've done my little Lucathon. I need to do a big triathlon and become an official triathlete. So I Googled world's toughest triathlon. And on the front page, I saw the Double Brutal Extreme Triathlon. And I thought, you know what? That's got a cool name. Let's sign up for that. And um, basically, it's a double Ironman distance triathlon in North Wales. So it's very hilly. And you swim your 4.8 miles. And then you get on your bike and you cycle your 225 miles. But the race has uh, 16,000 feet of climbing, 16,000 feet of climbing. Mm. Um, and then you run up and down Mount Snowdon, which is the highest mountain in Wales, straight off the bike, which is 3,300 feet. And then you continue on finishing your double marathon. And the total amount of climbing on the double marathon is about 10,000 feet. And I did it in 35 hours nonstop. And it was one of the funnest 35 hours I've ever had in my life. Wow. So how did it feel? <laughs> I can't imagine. At some points there, it had to be tough. The The toughest part was between sort of 2 and, and 5 a.m. when I was on the bike. Well, no, when I was just finishing the bike and about to start the run. Because my body wanted to sleep. My mm. um, circadian rhythm wanted to shut down. And I was on the last lap of the bike because so it was a, la- a looped course and it was quite cold and I just wanted to go to sleep and I just really had to keep myself awake. I was singing to myself. I was saying, you get to run up a mountain soon. How cool does that sound? And all these type of things. That was pretty tough. But um, I, I really did. I really enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun. I had three really good friends up there who were crewing for me that just basically laughed at me every time I came through with the laps. And some of them did a few laps on the run with me. And we just had a really good fun time. It was like sort of hanging out with friends for a whole weekend, it's just, except that I was swimming, cycling and running for 35 hours. So what kind of training does it take to be able to attempt something like this? You swim a lot, you cycle a lot, and you run a lot. (laughs) (laughs) So I I was, I I guess I was training with some Ironman triathletes and I was swimming around three times a week, anywhere between uh, two and two and four miles, I guess, uh, was probably the longest swims I was doing, Uh, cycling two to three times a week. Uh, some big cycles of uh, sort of like 100 and 120 miles, 130 miles most weekends and you know, doing a marathon just for fun on, on a Sunday. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was just doing a little bit extra than what, say, someone would do in a normal Ironman training uh, block. Mm. Well, the first time I heard of the Ironman, I was blown away. How does a human body do that? And then, you know, I started meeting you guys, these ultra marathoners and ultra runners and ultra triathletes who do this. I mean, this is just crazy. The Marathon de Saab, the, the double Ironman. But now you have the ultimate triathlon. Oh, yeah. So basically at the end of, at the start of 2015, I was about to announce the ultimate triathlon at the one of the biggest triathlon shows in the UK, and uh, one of my one of my sponsors there, Casaga Athletic, which is a plant based sustainable uh, clothing company, has just come out, and they were there uh, at the show, and I, and I announced it there, and you know, going back to when I first told people I was going to be an adventurer. Everyone laughed and said, no, you can't do that. Well, when I announced the ultimate triathlon, everyone thought I was crazy and they thought there was no way I was going to do this. Um, so my 2015 was all about focusing on the ultimate triathlon, promoting it, getting funding for it, 
Um, I had a, a documentary maker, a filmmaker that was going to film it to make a documentary about it. So that was a big, big, big thing to organize and also to train for because it was um, a swim between Spain and Morocco, which was anywhere between 10 and 15 miles and then cycling the southeast coast of Spain and that was uh, about 800 miles, 850 miles. And then once I got to the Spanish-French border, it was the equivalent of running 14 marathons and that was all in 12 days. So a quick recap, day one is a swim and a cycle and then it's four days of cycling and then it's seven days of running. And that was the ultimate triathlon, and I did it last year. Wow. So you made a documentary about this. Certainly did. I had to document it to make sure that people could see that I did it. So where can we see that documentary? Okay, so the documentary is going to be out in September. Uh, it'll 100% be as a digital download, but but I am speaking to a few people at the moment to try and get some screenings in the U.S., in Sydney, and also throughout the UK, especially in London. So if you follow me on social media or you just keep tabs me on my website, The Ultimate Triathlon has its own website, which is theultimatetriathlon.co. There will always be updates on that. So hopefully I'll have a few screenings throughout the US um, in September, but then by the end of September it will be available as a digital download and people can watch it and see what I did. Well, very cool. Does it have a name yet? Um, it does, but we're sort of withholding it just now. Okay, top secret. So, everybody, you'll have to pay attention to Luke Taberski's website so that you'll know when the documentary comes out how that you can get the documentary and see this ultimate triathlon in action. Luke, very cool stuff, man. I love what you're doing, and I love the message that you're bringing. Yeah, it's, you know, people say, oh, why Why do you do this? And, and we talked about this earlier and whatever, and I think it's for, for about me. And I, I wanted to live my life every single day, and I set this massive goal of I want to be an adventurer. I had no idea what that meant. I had no idea how I was going to make any money out of that, but that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to live my life, and that's the tag I gave it. Now, I don't have mass sponsors. I had to get this Ultimate Triathlon funded by crowdfunder and some private backers that came in late so i do these big adventures but these are the this is this makes content and then i write about them in magazines i've got a couple of books coming out next year i've got this documentary coming out as well Uh, i've got a few private sponsors i train other athletes so it's really i do a mix of everything that i love doing and i'm a real food cook i cook only using real food make my own energy bars and snacks and all that stuff so basically my my big dream as I want to be an adventurer was basically I want to live my life every single day and do all the stuff that I love doing and somehow try and turn it into a business. And that's what I've slowly been doing over these last four and a half years. And I've also added doing motivational speaking, which I'm uh, getting booked up for more and more often these days because you can see I'm very passionate about living life and, and getting out of your comfort zone and um, pushing yourself to your limits and 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 above and beyond. So uh, that's why I do it, and that's how I've uh, slowly getting there of achieving my dream. And uh, now, when I tell people I'm an endurance adventurer, they don't laugh, but more so their jaw drops. Mm, I love it. 
So close us out here, Luke, by speaking directly to our listeners. There are people out there who are doing small adventures, people that are doing large adventures. There are people out there that just want a little adventure in their lives. Inspire them. How do they get started? It doesn't matter how big or how small it is. The only thing that matters is you take that first step and you get out the door and you do an adventure and you live your life because we're here for only a short time. We're not here for a long time. And if you can go out and have an experience, whether it be physical or, or emotional or whatever, just have an experience and that's you living life. And I guarantee you that if you keep taking one step in front of the other, whether it's out in the mountains or swimming in lakes or oceans or whatever, you put one arm in front of the other, if you keep going, you'll surprise yourself just how far you can go. But most importantly, don't forget to stop, lift your head up and look around and see where you are because not everyone will be able to be where you are at that present time. So you should smile on the outside and on the inside and just think, wow, I'm really living life. Very, very cool. Luke, thank you very much for being on the Adventure Sports Podcast. My pleasure. Thank you. And for all of our listeners out there, I can't say it any better than Luke just did. For me, it really is about getting out there, connecting with nature, being present, and having some fun. 